Hello and welcome to Paideia. I'm Cassie and on this episode I will be talking about chapters 9 and 10 of Ender's Game. So a recap of everything that happens in chapters 9 and 10 for those of you who have never read the book or who it's been a while. So chapter 9 opens with Colonel Graf and a new character, Major Imbu, having a conversation about the computer that controls the fantasy game and how it put a picture of Ender's brother into the graphics in the fairyland routine. Major Imbu doesn't know how it happened or what it means, and Colonel Graf is not very happy with that. So then... Instead of focusing on Ender and what's going on with Ender, we get to see what's happening with Valentine and Peter. Um, And so Valentine still celebrates Ender's birthdays by lighting fires, and Ender's family has moved to Greensboro, North Carolina. They had been sending letters to Ender when he left, but they never got in any replies, so they stopped. Um, and Peter, um, he still has his, like, violent tendencies, but he's getting better at hiding them, and he's getting smarter. He knows how to make people think that he's normal, and, um, he's doing well in school. Um, but one time, Valentine found, um, a squirrel half-skinned, spiked by its little hands and feet with twigs pushed into the dirt, and she knew Peter did that. Um, Peter comes to Valentine um, and, like, threatens to kill her. I've been deciding, said Peter, whether to kill you or what. Valentine leaned against the trunk of the pine tree, her little fire, a few smoldering ashes. I love you too, Peter. Um, And In that conversation, Peter um, has been picking up on Russian troop movements, and he thinks that the bugger threat might not really be real. And he sees a power in writing, and he thinks that together, him and Valentine can use writing to influence the world and to influence what people think. Um, So he convinces um, Valentine to help him, and they get their parents' citizens' access to the net, and they go into these different spheres and um, test out different writings with different identities. Eventually, they adopt the identities Locke and Demosthenes. Sorry if I I know I butchered that. Locke and Demosthenes... um, where they write opinions, and these opinions differ. Valentine writes Demosthenes, and Peter writes Locke. But the way they've done it is that Valentine can't write Demosthenes without Peter, and Peter can't write Locke without Valentine. And part of that is is because the opinions that Demosthenes believes. Um, Valentine herself doesn't believe, and the approach they're using with Locke um, is one that 
Peter needs Valentine for. So these identities, um, over time, they both get paid to write columns in different regional news webs, and um, they're working their way up to being involved in the major debates. Um, and they are changing minds, and their ideas are out there, and people are using their ideas. Valentine's father even reads some DeMont's thesis and um, agrees with it, and Valentine is, like, shook by that, that her, her father is believing these things that she writes when she herself doesn't believe them and when she believes that only a fool would agree with her. Um, then Valentine's at school and she gets called to Dr. Lindbury's office and Dr. Lindbury appears to be a principal of sorts and Colonel Graff is there waiting for her and he wants Valentine to help him, to help Ender. Um, and so um, he talks to Valentine and they go on a walk and Colonel Graff gets to learn some more about Ender and he convinces Valentine to write a letter to Ender. And so then um, the chapter switches perspective and we get to see Ender receive Valentine's letter and this letter really shakes Ender and it hurts him knowing that his sister was used as a tool and that um, he feels this letter isn't real because it was asked for and he cries. Ender rarely cries but he cries after reading this um, letter and then Ender goes back into the fantasy game and he comes to the end with the snake, but instead of killing the snake, he shows it kindness. He kisses it, and then it becomes Valentine. Um, and, oh my god, this is like so foreshadowing, I just realized. Then they stood before the mirror, where instead of Peter's cruel reflection, there stood a dragon and a unicorn. Ender reached out his hand and touched the mirror, and so did Valentine. The wall fell open and revealed a great stairway downward, carpeted and lined with shouting, cheering multitudes. Together, arm in arm, he and Valentine walked down the stairs. Anyway, it's a new ending to the game. Um, and then the chapter shifts back to Valentine, and she's been awarded... Um, the highest honor that civilians can be ward awarded, but unfortunately it can't be publicized and it has to be kept secret. Um, and then in honor of Ender, Demonstheses, which is to say Valentine, um, writes that writes a scathing denunciation of the population limitation laws. People should be allowed to have as many children as they like, and a surplus population could be sent to other worlds to spread mankind so far across the galaxy that no disaster, no invasion could ever threaten the human race with annihilation. The most noble title any child can have, Demonstheses wrote, is third. For you, Ender, she said to herself as she wrote. 
Peter laughed in delight when he read it. That'll make them sit up and take notice. Third, a noble title. Oh, you have a wicked streak. And then we have chapter 10, Dragon, um, which opens with Colonel Grath and Major Anderson discussing um, discussing Ender and themselves. And in this chapter, Ender is given his own army. He's given the Dragon Army, an army that has not been in use, or name of an army, that has not been in use for many years because the Dragon Army had never won more than a third of its battles. And the rules of the game are changing. Ender can't make trades. Ender was given a green army with no one older than him and a small kid named Bean, who is the smartest, just like Ender. So Ender has his first few training, his first training session, um, and he picks on Bean. He singles Bean out, just like Colonel Graff has done to him, and just like Boneso. He is the kind of commander that he doesn't like, um... And he's still figuring out, like, how to be a commander. And he's making decisions about what he needs. But he empathizes with Bean. Because he kind of relates to Bean. And he feels bad for doing to Bean what they did to him. There's a wall put up between Ender and Ally. And Ender learns that Salam means peace be unto you. Um, and Ender remembers his mother's voice reading, um, and he decides at the end of the chapter that the real enemy is the teachers. And with that anger, he decided he was strong enough to defeat them, the teachers, his enemies. Um, so chapter 10, there's not a lot plot-wise but character development-wise, it's a pretty big chapter as we see this internal conflict within Ender um, about his identity and like what kind of commander he wants to be. And we see him grapple with the mistakes he's already made in being commander. So moving on now to dive deep and to, um, you know, ask questions and look for themes. The first thing that really struck me was at the beginning of chapter 9. They're talking about this computer as if it can think for itself and do things on its own. Um, you don't understand, sir. Our battle school computer is only a part of the IF network. If we want a picture, we have to get a requisition. But if the mind game program determines that the picture is necessary, it can just go take it. Not every day, only when it's for the child's good. So it seems like this program can think for itself and it can make requisitions that even Colonel Graf and Major Imbu can't. Um, it also talks about the mind game is a relationship between the child and the computer. Together they create stories 
The stories are true in the sense that they reflect the reality of the child's life. That's all I know. So, I don't think of computers as being in relationship with people. Relationship is not something I think an inanimate object can do. You know, I've always thought of, like, computers as tools. And so, um, like, I guess I think of they're kind of anthropomorphizing this computer and it's reading almost as if it's human because it has a mind it seems like it has a mind of its own and it can make decisions and it can be in relationship so like i'm wondering again like what makes us human like is it the ability to make decisions and use logic um maybe um i know that we can be in relationship with animals so it's not necessarily relationship that makes us human but it's relationship that makes us living it's in the same way that it's relationship you know i don't know because we're we're in relationship with our pets with our dogs and with animals and you know perhaps also you could say we're in relationship with plants as we water them and they grow and we take care for them. So maybe relationship is what makes us living or what makes things living. I don't know. So that struck me. And I know there's a book called like R.U.R. that um, is about the line between machine and human. Um, or I think it's called R.U.R. I've never read it, but um, I know people who have. And so that's just an interesting concept of, like, when do machines go too far? When are they imitating human humans? Um, this is kind of like um, AI, maybe. Alternative intelligence. And I don't know, is that ethical? Like, can alternative... Or can AI, um, can it make the same decisions and can it make decisions in a good way, in an ethical way, in a moral way, like humans can? Um, I don't know. Um, also the notion of truth and what is true from just these two pages, um, the end of the world in the game isn't necessarily the end of humanity in the bugger wars. It has a private meaning to ender. And that just speaks to the way that we all perceive things differently. And words can mean different things to different people. Words change meaning through time. And so, I don't know, that conversation was great. Um, now, I was so 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 excited that we got to revisit valentine and peter and see what they're up to and see what they've become and what they're doing um and again it just strikes me um now i'm noticing more the passage of time in this novel um this novel takes place over years so ender was six when he was taken and in this chapter he's eight 
Um, I think in chapter 10, I think he's nine already. Um, maybe not. Um, anyway, I've just been noticing that more. Um, so, with Peter, um, Peter is a very interesting character and a very complex character. And um, at the beginning of this chapter, um, uh, Colonel Graff says, I don't like having the computer screw around with Ender's mind that way. Peter Wiggin is the most potent person in his life, except maybe his sister Valentine. Um, and I'm pretty sure. Ah, and then, and I'll tell you what I know, Major Imbu. That picture of Peter Wiggin was not one that could have been taken from our files here at the school. We have nothing on him, electronically or otherwise, since Ender came here, and that picture is more recent. Um, and then he says, okay, it's for his good, but why? His brother is dangerous. His brother was rejected for this program because he's one of the most ruthless and unreliable human beings we've laid hands on. Why is he so important to Ender? Why? after all this time. So we get to know why Ender, why Peter wasn't chosen um, to be Ender. He's ruthless and unreliable. And we see that in him skinning the, um, in him skinning the rabbit, but then he also shows his weakness to Valentine, and he cries and you know, he says that, um, he says, uh, he doesn't want to, um, um, so, I don't know, but what I can't tell with Peter is I can't tell just like Val can't tell if he's manipulating her or if there's some sincerity to his words um and then like just in the time that we're living in um I don't know it's ah I don't know Peter is complex and he's hard to figure out and I don't know what to think of him. I definitely think that, you know, he has a tendency towards violence, which is very dangerous. Um, but then he also recognizes the power of words and starts to use those words. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, so, Demonstheses and Locke debate each other, but they're both being written by people who are working together, which is, like, very in interesting. They're, um, 
debating each other and foils of each other for a purpose to create divisiveness um and yeah I don't know what that says about um how we our political figures debate and um stuff like that um But there, Valentine, you know, Valentine seems to have good intentions, um, and she's, like, very smart. I just don't know, like, why she's making the decision she's making. I guess part of it is self-preservation. She herself says that um, as long as she's more useful to Peter alive than dead, she'll be safe. Um, Peter is very calculated. Very, he doesn't, there's always reason and logic behind his action, we learn. Um, So... Yeah. Ah, so Valentine, so I think this Demonstices, I like the way he thinks. I'm surprised he isn't in the major nets. I looked for him in the international relations debates, and you know, he's never taken part in any of them. So this is Valentine's father speaking. Valentine lost her appetite and left the table. Peter followed her after a respectable interview interval. So, you don't like lying to father, he said. So what? You're not lying to him. He doesn't think that you're really Demonstheses, and Demonstheses isn't saying things you really believe. They cancel each other out. They amount to nothing. That's the kind of reasoning that makes that makes Locke such an ass. But what really bothered her was not that she was lying to father. It was the fact that father actually agreed with Demonstheses. She had thought that only fools would follow him. A few days later, Locke got picked up for a column. So Demonstheses makes these you know, very, very out there, controversial um, stances and writings. Things that, you know, Val herself doesn't believe and that she doesn't like writing. Um, uh, things like, Valentine didn't like some of the positions Peter made Demonstices take. Demonstices began to develop um, as a fairly paranoid anti-Russian writer, it bothered her because Peter was the one who knew how to exploit fear in his writing. She had to keep coming to him for ideas on how to do it. Meanwhile, his lock followed her moderate, empathetic strategies. It made sense, in a way. By having her write demonstheses, it meant he also had some empathy, just as lock could play on others' fears. The main effect was to keep her inextricably tied to Peter.
She couldn't go off and use democracies for her own purposes. She wouldn't know how to use him. Still, it worked both ways. He couldn't write Locke without her, or could he? So, I mean, to me, reading this, I kind of, and reading who, like, only fools would support democracies, it kind of reminded me of um, some of the political figures we have now who take anti-this positions and who strive for divisiveness and who run on platforms of bigotry and hate and who a lot of people believe are very smart, just very capable of manipulation and, you know, and if you can't tell who I'm talking about, then, oh well. But, like, it's almost like we have a democracies um, in real life and not just in this fiction novel. Um, I don't know who our Locke is, though. I wonder if democracies is a um, archetype or a reflection of all politicians. I don't know trying to take positions to get noticed. Um, yeah. So, Colonel Graf asking Valentine to send a letter. When Valentine has sent many letters, they just haven't been allowed to get through. Ah. And at first, Valentine didn't want to. She didn't want to help Colonel Graf. Um, but, you know, Colonel Graf is a master at manipulation just in the way that he got Valentine to write a letter. And I don't know, is it ethical, is it moral to use family as, like, a weapon against Ender um, and to use his family to manipulate his emotions. Um, yeah. The scene where Ender reads the letter was... Ugh. Ender was four lines into the letter before he realized that it wasn't from one of the other soldiers in the battle school. It had come in the regular way, a mail-waiting message. When he signed into his desk, he read four lines into it, then skipped to the end and read the signature. Then he went back to the beginning and curled up on his bed to read the words over and over again. Ender. The bastards wouldn't put any of my letters through till now. I must have written a hundred times, but you must have thought I never did. Well, I did. I haven't forgotten you. I remember your birthday. I remember everything. Some people might think that because you're being a soldier, you are now a cruel and hard person who likes to hurt people, like the Marines in the videos. But I know that isn't true. You are nothing like you-know-who. He's nicer seeming, but he's still a slum bitch inside. Maybe you seem mean, but it won't fool me. Still paddling the old new... All my love, turkey lips, Val. Don't write back. They'll probably psychoanalyze your letter. So, Valentine left clues so that Ender knew 
that it was Val. And yet, they came pretty thick, as though someone wanted to make very sure that Ender believed that the letter was genuine. Why should they be so eager if it's the real thing? It isn't the real thing anyway. Even if she wrote it in her own blood, it isn't the real thing because they made her write it. She'd written before, and they didn't let any of those letters through. Those might have been real, but this was asked for. This was a part of their manipulation. And the despair filled him again. Now he knew why. Now he knew what he hated so much. He had no control over his own life. They ran everything. They made all the choices. Only the game was left to him. That was all. Everything else was them and their rules and plans and lessons and programs. And all he could do was go this way or that way in battle. The one real thing, the one precious real thing was his memory of Valentine. The person who loved him more, loved him before he ever played a game. Who loved him whether there was a bugger war or not. They had taken her and put her on their side. She was one of them now. He hated them and all their games, hated them so badly that he cried reading Val's empty, asked-for letter again. The other boys in Phoenix Army noticed and looked away. Ender Wigan crying? That was disturbing. Something terrible was going on. The best soldier in any army lying on his bunk crying? The silence in the room was deep. One thing I guess I forgot to mention in the recap is that um, Ender is now in Phoenix Army with Petra as his commander, and he is a tune leader. Um, but from that scene, um, I just, it leads me to wonder, like, what is real and what is not real? Um, and what makes something real? Who decides it's real? Um, and then I think about, um, the one we read some, um, Aristotle in my Paideia class, and I remember the lecture on philosophy, and it was very hard to follow for me, but I remember them saying, like, how do we know a dog is a dog or a table is a table? And that, like, dogs are dogs because they have this thing, this indescribable thing that we perceive as dogness, and dogness exists, like, outside of reality or something. So, like, what is realness? What makes something real? Like, um, how do we know what reality is? And, um, I guess... In this case, the letter isn't real because it wasn't written out of Valentine's own free will. I believe that the letter is genuine, um, but Valentine was manipulated and forced into writing it. So maybe it's the way in which we create or the way in which we talk, um, is what makes something real. Um, and it might not be real to Ender, but is it real to Valentine? I don't know. Um, also, the control. He had no control over his own life. 
do any of us have control over our own lives? Um, you know, yes, we have free will, um, but, you know, some believe that, like, God has a plan for us, and, you know, there's, while we have free will, there's not a lot that we can do to, like, break God's plan for us, um, and it's hard to know what that is. So if God has a plan for us, how much control do we have? And, you know, there's, like, ideas of destiny and fate, um, which I don't know if I believe in destiny or fate, but, you know, thinking as someone who does, if we all have a predetermined destiny, then do our choices matter? Do we have any control of our outcomes? Um, or is it? fate is a destiny that determines them you know um and ender has choices in the game but he and he had a choice to go to the battle school or not and i wonder if he regrets the choice he made um i don't know the idea of what can what we can control and what we can't is interesting to me. We can't control um, how viruses, um, you know, uh, gosh, how they spread, and we can't control how they. Oh gosh, there's a word I'm thinking of that I can't think of. Anyway, we can't control when new viruses are made or when viruses become resistant or um, when they change and they evolve. Um, and, you know, we have little control over the passage of the viruses, um, except for right now we can control where we go, who we see, and um, our personal hygiene, but... There are things, natural disasters and weather. We can't control the weather as much as we might like to. Um, so, like, what you can control and what you can't control and how that impacts you um, is, interest is an interesting thing to explore. So, um, ch on to getting in more to chapter 10. Um, so, Ender is given his own army, but the rules are changing. And from the conversation with Colonel Graff and Major Anderson at the beginning, we know that um, this is going to be unfair to Ender. Come on, Anderson, you're just dying to see how he handles all those rigged games I had you work out. That's a pretty low thing, too. So I'm a low kind of guy. Come on, Major. We're both the scum of the earth. I'm dying to see how he handles them, too. After all, our lives depend on him doing real well. Nay, you're starting to use the boy's slang, are you? Call him in, Major. I'll dump the rosters into his files and give him his security system. What we're doing to him isn't bad. All bad, you know. He gets his privacy again isolation you mean 
the loneliness of power of power go call him in they do say it's lonely at the top um and having power can be lonely because I guess there are boundaries that you have to keep and you know people won't you might not know if people are your friend because they like you or because they want some of your power um so we learned that these extra practice sessions have been going on for three years um and we learn this when Ender is assigned his army. Again, I'm struck at, like, just the passage of time. Um, as I'm reading, it doesn't seem like the chapters are spanning this as much time as they are. Um, and I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm not paying attention to the passing of time um, like I should be. Anyway... Ender is assigned to the dragon army. Remember, he saw a dragon in the mirror in the fantasy game at the end of chapter 9. Um, and now, um, Ender meets his army, and he is intentionally doing things differently. Um... Bunking will be arranged by seniority. Veterans to the back at, um, back of the room, newest soldiers to the front. It was the reverse of the usual pattern, and Ender knew it. He also knew that he didn't intend to be like many commanders who never saw the younger boys because they were always in the back. So, you know, doing things the way they've always been done isn't necessarily doing what's best for um, the people you're leading or for your organization. Just because things have always been done a certain way doesn't mean that there aren't better ways to do them. Um, and so I like that Ender is changing the status quo and he's doing things in a different way so that he doesn't ignore people who are often ignored um but then um ender when he's leading practice and you know when he's like telling them to get dressed and he's like berating them for not getting dressed fast enough you know he's doing what the commanders he despised did um his training tactics aren't interesting, though. He's simply teaching his soldiers how to move and how to get control and be comfortable in the null gravity battle room. He's not teaching them formations or strategies. Um, he's first making sure they can all handle themselves. Um, and his training is very different than with... Um, what we've seen from other commanders. So Bean is a small young boy and Ender has put a target on his back because Bean is very smart. Um, and Bean is the soldier who can answer all of Ender's questions 
and he's the soldier who is understanding how to do these maneuvers and how to move in null gravity before all the other ones. And Ender is treating him like Colonel Graff treated Ender, like Bonso, um, and like Bonso even treated Ender. Um, so his like reflection of what he's doing to Bean is really interesting, and his reflection on how he's leading is really interesting to me. And just the relationship of Ender and Bean. Bean, Ender, I think, sees himself in Bean. And he empathizes with Bean because he sees himself in Bean. Um, but Bean isn't Ender. And Bean doesn't have the fate of humanity resting on his ability to become a great military leader. Is it some law of human nature that you inevitably, inevitably become whatever your first commander was? I can quit right now if that's so. Over and over he thought of the things he did and said in his first practice with his new army. Why couldn't he talk like he always did in his evening practice group? No authority except excellence. Never had to give orders, just made suggestions. But that wouldn't work, not with an army. His informal practice group didn't have to learn to do things together. They didn't have to develop a group feeling. They never had to learn how to hold together and trust each other in battle. They didn't have to respond instantly to commands. And he could go to the other extreme too. He could be as lax and incompetent as Rose the Nose if he wanted. He could make stupid mistakes no matter what he did. He had to have discipline. And that meant demanding and getting quick, decisive obedience. He had to have a well-trained army, and that meant drilling the soldiers over and over again. Long after, they thought they had mastered a technique until it was so natural to them that they didn't have to think about it anymore. But what was this thing with Bean? Why had he gone for the smallest, weakest, and possibly the brightest of boys? Why had he done to Bean what had been done to Ender by commanders that he despised. Then he remembered that it hadn't begun with his commanders. Before Rose and Bonso treated him with contempt, he had been isolated in his launch group. And it wasn't Bernard who began that either. It was Graf. It was the teachers who had done it. And it wasn't an accident. Ender realized that now it was a strategy. Graf had deliberately set him up to be separate from the other boys, made it impossible for him to be close to them, and he begun now to suspect the reasons behind it. It wasn't to unify the rest of the group. In fact, it was divisive. Graf had isolated Ender to make him struggle, to make him prove not that he was competent, but that he was far better than everyone else. That was the only way he could win respect and friendship. It made him a better soldier than he would ever have been otherwise. It also made him lonely, afraid, angry, untrusting, and maybe those traits too made him a better soldier. That's what I'm doing to you, Bean. I'm hurting you to make you a better soldier in every way, to sharpen your wit, 
to intensify your effort, to keep you off balance, never sure what's going to happen next. So you always have to be ready for anything, ready to improvise, determined to win no matter what. I'm also making you miserable. That's why they brought you to me, Bean, so you could be just like me, so you could grow up to be just like the old man. And me? Am I supposed to grow up to be like Grath? Fat and sour and unfeeling, manipulating the lives of little boys so they turn out factory perfect generals and admirals ready to lead the fleet in defense of the homeland? You get all the pleasure of the puppeteer until you get a soldier who can do more than anyone else. You can't have that. It spoils the symmetry. You must get him in line, break him down, isolate him. Beat him until he gets in line with everyone else. Well, what I've done to you this day, Bean, I've done. But I'll be watching you, more compassionately than you know. And when the time is right, you'll find that I'm your friend, and you are the soldier you want to be. That passage is pretty powerful. That reflection of Ender is pretty powerful. So again, I see divisiveness as a strategy. Um, and that kind of is also being used in chapter 10 with the Moths of the Seas and Locke's writings. Divisiveness as a strategy. And I wonder why divisiveness works. And I wonder if divisiveness is the right strategy. Um, I would tend to want to have unity over divisiveness. Um, I guess there will always be some divisiveness or differences in people because people are different and that's the way it is. People will always be different and have differences and we can't ignore those differences or ignore how those differences affect how people are treated. Um, but there is like common human experiences that span all ages, all races, ethnicities, sexualities, gender identities. There are common human experiences that I feel we could unify around and um, I wonder, is the power of unity greater than the power of divisiveness? And right now, I don't know, but it seems like divisiveness is more powerful if you look at the way things are in the world. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking back at chapter nine, um, because I'm trying to see what Peter's initial goal was. Ah, 
a Pax Americana through the world. So when somebody else comes after we beat the buggers, when somebody else comes here to defeat us, they'll find we've spread over a thousand worlds. We're at peace with ourselves and impossible to, to destroy. Do you understand? I want to save mankind from destruction. So that sounds to me like he wants to unite humankind. We're at peace with ourselves. Peace was a big idea throughout these chapters. Um, but what is peace? Is peace the absent peace? Is it the absence of war? The absence of conflict? Um, is peace unity? Are peace and unity related? And how so? Um, I think we tend to think of peace um, as an absence of war. Um, but maybe it's an absence of conflict. Maybe it's the threat of no war ever again. Um, but I don't know. The other place where we see peace is when Ender goes to the game room because he doesn't want to go back to his army's barracks. He had long since learned that the best commanders stay away unless they have some reason to visit. The boys have to have a chance to be at peace, at rest, without someone listening to favor or despise them, depending on the way they talk and act and think. That was an unintentional place where I saw peace. Um, but anyway, he went to the game room, and he's talking with Ally. Um, Salam, Ally. Alas, it is not to be. What is it? Peace. It's what Salam means. Peace be unto you. And it's not to be because now Ender and Ally are enemies. When he said, so... But up above, peace is equated with rest, or it's equated as the absence of judgment. Um, and maybe there are different meanings of peace and different kinds of peace. And each peace maybe means something else. Um, And here, oh, I found unity again. With ally to a degree, and well, let's see. In the silence, the bear died. It was a cute death with funny music. Ender turned around. Ally was already gone. Ender felt as if a part of himself had been taken away in the inward prop that was holding up his courage and confidence. With ally to a degree impossible, even with Shen, Ender had come to feel a unity so strong that the word we came to his lips much more easily than I. But Ally had left something behind. Ender lay in bed, dozing into the night, and felt Ally's lips on his cheeks as he muttered the word peace. The kiss, the word, the peace were still with him, still. I am only what I remember. An ally is my friend in a memory so intense that they can't tear it, tear him out, like Valentine, the strongest memory of all.
The next day, he passed Ally in the corridor. They greeted each other, touched hands, talked, but they both knew that there was a wall now. It might be breached, that wall, sometime in the future, but for now, the only real conversation between them was the roots that they had already grown, low and deep, under the wall where they could not be broken. The most terrible thing, though, was the fear that the wall would never be breached, that in his heart, Ally was glad of the separation and was ready to be Ender's enemy. For now, that they could not be together, they must be indefinitely apart, and what had been sure and unshakable was now fragile and insubstantial. From the moment we are not together, Ally is a stranger, for he has a life now that will be no part of mine, and that means that when I see him, we will not know each other. It had made him sorrowful, but Ender did not weep. He was done with that when they had turned Valentine into a stranger, when they had used her as a tool to work on Ender. From that day forward, they could never hurt him deep enough to make him cry again. Ender was certain of that, and with that anger, he decided he was strong enough to defeat them, the teachers, his enemies. So we have peace and we have unity. Two very powerful ideas. Um, the unity that Ender described with Ally was so powerful. But unity can be broken. Um, and peace can be taken away. Um, a lot of people have a goal of world peace. But I wonder, what does world peace look like? And how do we go about creating it? Is it through unity? Or is it through division? I don't know. Um, these chapters are getting longer and they have so much in them to unpack that. So are these podcast episodes. Um, anyway, thank you for listening. And um, I apologize that sometimes I might ramble or repeat ideas or... Um, that sometimes there's not a very good structure, but thank you for listening anyway, and I hope that you are getting something out of it. I know that I'm really enjoying this, um, project and this new hobby because it's making me slow down my reading and it's really making me think about my reading. Normally, a book like this... I could finish in a day or two, um, but I think I've been reading and um, thinking about it for longer. And sometimes reading fast is good, like when you have a lot of homework, um, but I think I'm getting more out of it, reading it slow um, like this and having a... Um, method of processing and thinking about it than I would if I just read it to read or to read for um, enjoyment. But I am enjoying the book and I am getting a lot more out of it than I would if I was reading fast. 
So thank you for listening. Well, that's another episode of Paideia. Um, Looking forward to the next one. Um, And I really am itching to see how this book ends. And I know that it's a series, um, but I'm really getting into it. And so the episodes might have more chapters as I do more reading. We'll see. I don't really have a plan. Um, But thanks for listening anyway, and have a great day. This has been another episode of Paideia with Cassie Michael.